This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Katie Kernett, who is an Assistant Professor uh, in Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Chicago Medicine. Katie, thank you so much and welcome. Oh, thank you. Um, it's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So, Katie, uh, you've recently published a, a very interesting article, one that I want to speak to you about, because it's often a question that comes up in discussion when we see patients with um, mucinous ovarian carcinoma. Obviously, these, these tumors um, behave differently than the, than the standard ovarian cancer. And, and one of the questions that always comes up is, um, how do we treat these patients? Do we treat them with uh, GYN-based chemotherapy? versus um, GI type of chemotherapy. So um, you recently published a, a, an article in Obstetrics and Gynecology um, titled Effects of Gastrointestinal Type Chemotherapy in Women with uh, Ovarian Mucinous Carcinoma. So I was wondering if you can start by just kind of giving us some details as to the rationale for conducting the study. Why do you think the study was uh, relevant to the field of gynecologic oncology? And then I was just also um, wondering if you can talk to us about like what are the current NCCN guidelines for treatment of uh, patients with uh, ovarian mucinous carcinoma? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you alluded to, mucinous ovarian cancer is a rarer type of epithelial ovarian cancer. Um, they behave differently than other epithelial ovarian cancer subtypes, but historically we've tended to lump them in with um, these other high-grade serous ovarian cancers, endometrate ovarian cancers, uh, mostly because of the rarity of the tumor. So um, a lot of our recommendations were based on these trials that may not necessarily apply to most mucinous ovarian cancer patients. Um, I think in the last um, many numbers of years, um, decades probably, um, oncologists have started to consider mucinous ovarian tumors potentially more similar to GI-type malignancies based on a lot of their molecular features. Um, and so that sort of provided the rationale as a field as why these patients may benefit from a GI-type regimen rather than our usual GYN regimens. Um, the current NCCN guidelines um, are somewhat broad. For stage 1A and 1B mucinous ovarian cancers, the recommendation is really for observation of these patients. Um, once you get to stage 1C, it's, it gets a little bit more gray. Um, they recommend either observation or consideration of chemotherapy. Um, and they say that chemotherapy can really include either a gynecologic type regimen or a gastrointestinal type regimen. Uh, once you get to stage two through four, the recommendation is for chemotherapy um, with either a GYN or a GI regimen. Um, and they say in these cases, you can consider adding bevacizumab. Yeah, so definitely not something extremely concrete on uh, on these NCCN guidelines. But one of the things I wanted to ask you, sort of like before going into the details of your study, um, there was a study by the, the GOG, I believe it was GOG 241, that attempted mm -hmm. to answer uh, a similar question. And I was wondering if you can tell us about, you know, some of the details of that study and what ultimately happened with that study. Yeah, GOG-241 was a really interesting study um, that was designed based on this idea that mucinous ovarian tumors might behave more like the GI cancers. Um, it was a randomized phase three study, multi-institutional, you know, a collaborative trial um, of previously untreated stage two, three, or four primary tumors or recurrent stage one patients with mucinous ovarian cancer. Um, patients were randomized to one of four arms, either carboplatin and paclitaxel, oxaliplatin and capsitabine, and 
recommend both arms with and without the addition of bevacizumab. Um, unfortunately, the trial accrued very slowly and was ultimately closed early. Uh, they didn't meet their planned sample size and thus the treatment comparisons were not really possible. They did publish these data uh, or the data that were available in gynecologic oncology this year. And so that is an interesting reference to look back to. Um, the most important finding in my mind from the standpoint was that when they re-reviewed the pathology and essential pathology review, only 45% of those whose pathology was re-reviewed were actually confirmed to have an ovarian primary. So the majority of these patients didn't even have a GYN primary malignancy once they reviewed the path. I think this really underscores the difficulty we have with making this diagnosis in the first place um, and the importance um, of our pathology colleagues in this diagnosis and treatment plan. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. I mean, it's remarkable that it was almost 50 percent that uh, yeah. that you you really got a different diagnosis um, when evaluated by an expert pathologist. So now um, coming on to your study, what was the primary objective of your study? What were your inclusion and exclusion criteria? And, and particularly, I saw that you excluded patients who underwent HIPIC, if you can talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah. Um, so the primary inclusion criteria were basically the patients had to have had a mucinous ovarian cancer primary. Um, and this was going back to the issues with GOG-241. This, the pathology had to have been confirmed by a GYN pathologist at one of the institutions that were included. Um, these patients had to have received upfront surgery. And this were basically, these were patients who um, were being given adjuvant chemotherapy. So the patients who were not recommended for chemotherapy were not included. These are all patients who were already recommended to get chemotherapy and who had been treated with one of one of these two regimens. Um, HIPEC is an interesting question. It was excluded because I think its role is still not yet defined, and a very small number of patients currently included who would have otherwise met eligibility criteria had received HIPEC. Um, but I think we just don't quite know the impact it's going to have, and thus these were these patients were just excluded. So then, Katie, what were the findings? Yeah, so we ended up including 52 patients from both Johns Hopkins and MD Anderson um, who met our criteria. So they had mucinous ovarian cancer and were given chemotherapy. Half, 26, um, received a gynecologic regimen and the other half received a gastrointestinal regimen. Um, most patients here were early stage, the vast majority. Um, we found that patients that received the GI-type regimens had a better overall survival than those who received a GYN regimen with a hazards ratio of 0.2 that was statistically significant. And they also had a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival with a hazards ratio of 0.4. And, um, and Katie, when you... Talk because I, I see that there's uh, certainly a variety of regimens. Uh, you know, it seems that capacitabine and oxaliplatin are the ones that are the the, the leading regimen. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did you decide which GI type regimen to to use in uh, in uh, in the chemotherapy for gynecologic type regimen? Yeah, so we left it initially very broad. We wanted to see all of the different, kind of describe the practices that were being used um, at these two institutions. So we initially said that we would include any patient who had received almost any regimen and had split them up. But specifically, we were looking for oxaliplatin, arenotecan, 5-fluorouracil, and capsidabine because these are kind of the traditional GI regimens, or at least backbones, that a lot of um, folks use for GI cancers. And a lot of the ovarian mucinous cancer patients would have followed that suit. Um, 
we decided that if they'd received any of these four drugs as part of their chemotherapy, that we would put them in with the GI type regimens, even if they had also received a, um, some components of the GYN type regimens um, as well, just because this would have been kind of a deviation from our usual GYN chemotherapy. The gynecologic regimens that we included were basically anything that was primarily cisplatin or carboplatin based um, for frontline treatment. A lot of these patients, the vast majority received carboplatin and paclitaxel, but um, because of the long time period and practice patterns that have changed, two also received cyclophosphamide instead of paclitaxel, and one received cisplatin instead of carboplatin. And, uh, and Katie, when I look at the uh, results, I noted that you know, certainly you mentioned that the majority of patients had stage one disease, uh, I believe it was 59%, and only 24% of patients had stage three or four disease. Um, you actually write that 90% of patients with stage one or two disease had surgical staging with an omentectomy with or without lymphadenectomy, and that 88% of patients had no gross residual disease after surgery. So my question is, you know, certainly uh, some might criticize and say, well, uh, perhaps these patients might not have been the ideal population given their lower risk and the fact that, you know, basically without measurable disease, one would not be able to truly capture the impact of two different drug, drug regimens. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's actually a really important point. Um, this study was not designed to answer the question of who should be treated with adjuvant chemotherapy. Rather, for the study, we were trying to identify that when patients were identified to have to be given chemotherapy to see how they did um, with those different regimens. This is sort of like the real world application of mucinous ovarian cancer. Um, in terms of the stage distribution, most patients are stage one, and I think this reflects the practices that a lot of us see. Um, Although these patients are at a lower risk for having recurrent disease, the fact that we were able to detect a difference um, between these two regimens supports the idea that even in these lower risk patients, there may still be a benefit for GI type regimens compared with GYN regimens once you have already made the decision to give chemotherapy as adjuvant therapy. Yeah, and, and I noticed that patients that received the GI regimen were more likely to receive bevacizumab, 50% versus 4%. So, you know, I can't help to think, but, you know, did the bevacizumab, did that have such a beneficial impact on the GI regimen that, in fact, platinum-based regimens may be just as good? In, in other words, was it the bevacizumab or was it the, the, um, the GI-based regimen? Yeah, this was something that we were also concerned about, especially when we initially looked at our data. Um, we had initially planned to try to do a multivariable analysis to try to control for bevacizumab, but our numbers were ultimately too, um, too small and the model was unstable. Therefore, we just did an exploratory analysis where we excluded all the patients who got bevacizumab at all to try to tease out the effect of just the chemotherapy regimens and try to eliminate any impact bevacizumab. Uh, might have. So in these exploratory sub-analyses, we still found that the GI regimen was associated with an improvement in overall survival, although the progression-free survival difference was not statistically significant. So although these were small exploratory sub-analyses, um, I think that they still suggest that the benefit is more than just a difference in the, the rates of co-administration of bevacizumab between these two regimens. And, uh, and Katie, one of the things also that, you know, in looking at the time frame of the study, and, you know, obviously it was from 1994 to 2018, 
Um, would you consider that some might criticize the outcomes based on the fact that it was conducted over such a long period of time? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is sort of the double-edged sword of this study and this type of study. So we were only able to be able, we were only able to get like an adequate number of patients with a rare tumor type because we had such a long time period. We had data for many, many years of patients and treatment. Um, but for the same reason, because the study spans so, um, so long, practice patterns have changed. You know, ovarian cancer outcomes have changed over time. And this certainly could have impacted um, how our patients did even outside of what chemotherapy regimen they received. And I think we have to acknowledge that as a limitation, but also acknowledge that is, as we found with GOG241, with these rare tubers, it's hard to accrue patients and analyze study patient outcomes um, in a shorter period of time because of the rarity of the tumor type. Completely, yeah. And um, so what, what would you say are some of the, the strengths of the study and the, the limitations of the study? So I think the biggest strength here is that we were able to study a, a pretty good sized number of patients who do have this rare tumor type. Um, part of that was because of the long study follow-up. Part of that was that it was collaborative between two centers. Um, and I think the two-center collaboration also helped our study because it provided a little bit more breadth to the um, treatment patterns that were used during that time period. A retrospective study relies on there being differences in the way patients were treated. Um, and I think that having that collaborative effort definitely helped there. Um, the biggest limitations um, were mostly surrounding the fact that this was a retrospective study and it has all of the limitations that retrospective studies have. The long time period is definitely an issue for the reasons we discussed, but um, so is the fact that patients were not randomly allocated. Um, there could have been other reasons why certain patients were given one regimen and certain patients were given the other regimen, the idea of bias in these selections is certainly possible. Um, and I think that, you know, from a conceptual standpoint, there were many exploratory questions that we wanted to answer. Um, there were subgroups of patients that probably would have benefited more or less, suboptimal debulking group, the stage three and four patients. Um, I think these are all questions that we would like to know because it does seem like there may be a difference in these higher risk groups, but we were significantly underpowered to look at these questions. And I think that that was a big limitation here. Now, Kay, I want to ask you a couple of sort of global questions on, on management of patients with uh, ovarian mucinous carcinomas. And you alluded to a little bit before on the issue of HIPEC. And, and you know, obviously this comes up. What are, what are your thoughts on the use of HIPEC and, and certainly for advanced ovarian mucinous carcinomas? I'm interested in hearing your, your uh, thoughts on this topic. Yeah. I think the idea of HIPAC and these um, advanced ovarian mucinous carcinomas are really interesting. I think especially going along with the idea that these appear molecularly um, histologically similar to gastrointestinal tumors, I think there is a lot of potential for HIPAC here. I think we don't yet know the answer to this question. I think we're even still sorting it out for other subtypes of ovarian cancer patients, but it does seem like there is some interest. Um, so the recent randomized phase three HIPEC trial published in 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine really only included three patients with mucinous histology. So I don't think we can extrapolate from there, but there are other retrospective studies that did look um, at kind of a wide range of patients that included higher proportions of patients with mucinous tumors. I think those even still seem 
um, seem promising in terms of responses to HIPEC. I think in general, there will be more HIPEC trials on the horizon for ovarian cancer patients. And I hope that um, we do consider including mucinous histologies in those inclusion criteria. I know that this makes studies more complex. It's nicer to have a cleaner, more well-defined study population. But I think that knowing that the mucinous ovarian tumors may respond particularly well to HIPEC should motivate us to um, not necessarily exclude these patients from future trials. And then Katie, also there's been uh, documentation of um, KRAS and HER2 mutations in, in these types of tumors. Is there anything that seems promising on the horizon as it pertains to more targeted therapy? Absolutely. I think this is an exciting area for mucinous ovarian cancer. So you mentioned KRAS and HER2. There are some BRAF mutations. Um, there are certainly interesting targeted therapeutics for these pathways. Um, they are being um, developed in other tumor types that have higher rates of these that are more, you know, more common cancers that are more easily studied. Um, I think this is an interesting path forward for mucinous ovarian tumors, especially in the recurrent setting. Unfortunately, I think we will run into similar issues if we try to do another prospective trial limiting to mucinous ovarian cancers as we did with GOG241. But I think that these would be great patients to consider for basket trials. So trials that are ongoing that are phase one or phase two that might be looking for patients who have these um, um, uh, mutations in their um, somatic tumor testing, I think these would be great patients to potentially include in those. There are plenty of other tumors that are trying MEK inhibitors, BRAF inhibitors, HER2 inhibitors, um, and it would be really great to be able to evaluate some of these newer drugs in our patients with mucinous ovarian cancer as well. So, Katie, now I'd certainly love to uh, keep talking with you. Um, <laughs> but uh, one last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, what have you learned from, from this study? And we always certainly are very interested in what the author actually does. So what <laughs> regimen do you use in your practice? And I'd love to hear your thoughts also on whether you include bevacizumab in your standard treatment of these patients. Yeah. Um, I think for me the big take-home from this study is that for patients who I think chemotherapy is going to be beneficial, a gastrointestinal regimen probably or at least may provide a benefit over traditional carboplatin and paclitaxel. Um, in my practice, I have started recommending gastrointestinal type regimens for these patients. This study and GOG you know, 241 had only one of these um, regimens there, but um, I don't think this study can by any means answer the question of whether the KPOX or the FULFOX regimen would be better. I have used both in my practice, um, and I think the decision-making process sort of includes a discussion with the patient. Since I think some patients like the idea of using capecitabine because it is an oral agent. Um, on the other hand, for gynecologic oncologists who may be working more closely with medical oncologists, just for chemotherapy, Fulfox is probably a more common regimen in the GI world. Um, and so it, there may be kind of easier workflow to get Fulfox um, prescribed from a practical standpoint. Um, in terms of bevacizumab, I don't think that this study or GOG241 can really answer that question. For that decision, I, you know, use the NCCN guidelines. Um, so for patients with two, three, and four disease, I consider giving bevacizumab. Um, I think particularly for patients who have had suboptimal debulkings um, or other reasons that I'm concerned that their tumor might be more aggress aggressive, I definitely lean toward giving bevacizumab in combination with either KPOX or Fulfox. So, Katie, um, 
certainly has been a pleasure speaking with you on this topic, and, and I congratulate you uh, once again. Uh, do you have any uh, you. summary statements? Um, I think that in addition to um, the results of our treatment response, the other big take-home message that I do want to reiterate is how difficult these tumors can be to definitively diagnose. Mm -hmm. I think this is really underscores the importance of working closely with our GYN pathologists um, and considering getting a second opinion from a gynecologic pathology trained pathologist if there is any ambiguity, if there are um, immunohistochemistry and other techniques that they use to try to help differentiate between a GI primary and an ovarian primary, but it can still be difficult. Um, I think this also really underscores the difficulty um, in studying rare tumors, like we ran into with GOG241, and the importance of multi-center collaborations. Um, I know that we would always prefer prospective randomized data, but there are cases like this potentially that this isn't feasible, and we should be able to learn from the information that we've already generated from all the patients we've already treated. And I think that um, prospective collaborative trials, but also uh, potentially collecting data prospectively, kind of in registry studies or kind of trying to capture our current practice patterns as we go may help try to answer some of these questions in rare, rare histologies and rare tumor types. Katie, as always, a pleasure speaking with you. I congratulate you on this uh, great work. Keep doing uh, so this much. great work. And uh, once again, thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure.